Welcome to part two of the Nephilim conspiracies that begins in prehistory, that has affected our history throughout time, is uh, around and working its strategy and tactics today, and will be a significant part of the end time. And in part one, we looked at the basic organizational structure, which is so important to understand end time prophecy, and to understand how these organizations work together. And we talked about how the descendants of Cain and Enoch in particular, right down through Lamech and Jubal and Tubal Cain developed the knowledge that they, that, that Masonic organizations say that they learned in Eden into the seven sacred sciences and how it was matched with the fallen angels and the fallen angels' knowledge to take the antediluvian knowledge to a great level, building great monolithic sites like the pyramids, megalithic sites, and with this knowledge. And this builder guild knowledge is going to be a key part of what we're going to talk about today. And how they also partnered with the, the Nephilim, who are the offspring of the fallen angels and the daughters of Cain, to usurp the world with an organizational structure of fallen angels as the pantheon of the mystical religion developed by Enoch, uh, which is the sun-worshipping and bull cult religion designed to um, save the elite bloodlines that, that they have created and Cainite bloodlines into that bloodline, and to develop this knowledge that they did break now off into the mystery schools and have broken down into the seven sacred sciences that people know as the seven liberal sciences, and how this organization brings the antediluvian world to its knees, and then how it crossed the flood through the pillars of Lamech, which Masonic organizations who obviously take their their start back to the development of this knowledge in the mystery schools and their patriarchs are Cain and, and, and Enoch and all the descendants of Cain. And of course, their gods are the fallen angels like the watchers out of Enoch. And how Hermes finds this knowledge in religion by finding the pillars of, of Lamech under the pyramids in Egypt. And he brings this knowledge and religion back to Babel and they restart Enochian mysticism, which is the Babel religion, which will be the end time religion. In, in my opinion, and begin to exercise this knowledge and religion to build Babel City, build Babel Tower, overlay this religion with Nimrod as the king and antichrist figure uh, to rebel against God again. So we have the same thing happening very quickly after the flood as we did before the flood. And that this is now the organizational structure that is is passed on to the post-Diluvian world of fallen angels and their knowledge and the descendants of Nephilim and Cain and either through crossing the flood as they may may take their genealogy back or a second incursion as we might understand it in, in the flood that Nimrod's descendants are going to intermarry into. And of course the, the, the Enochian sun worship bull cult that is so common in, in polytheism. And at Babel, they're split. They're, the languages are dispersed. People are sent around the world. And you have Nimrod taking his mystical religion into keeping it in Shinar, which is Sumer. And that religion will move further east into India and Hinduism and into China and Japan, Southeast Asia. Just as you have Hermes, according to Masonic records, 
who have this have the religion moving along with Mizraim and Ham over to Egypt to start the second pillar of the religion. So you have these two major pillars that are going to be the anchor for all of the different religions around the world, which you know should connect by connecting knots. We understand that all of the religions have the same pantheon, the same gods. And, and the same religion, just different vernacular names and terms and rituals. And in this, we also understand through the Masons that they look at Nimrod as the first grand master of Masonry after the flood and Babel City and Babel Tower as the first demonstration of the knowledge with the fifth science of Masonry and geometry after the flood. And he writes the first constitution, Nimrod does, that is going to last until it is added to and refined, so to speak, and reformed at Heliopolis uh, that will now move forward down and into uh, the secret societies and religions sort of moving forward. And, of course, it's the e Egyptian religion that is going to spread around the Mediterranean to uh, Greece and to Canaan, and you're going to have the same type of pantheon and religion that, that sets up there. And of course, out of the great Greek religion, we, we, we have the philosophies that people understand it. And all of these are important to understand as to how they're going to come together a little bit later on. And so now we have this organizational structure that we talk about. So all of the kings and dynasties moving forward are going to have this priest and this divine representative of a bloodline as a king who is also a priest king and head of the religion and has the divine right to rule from the gods and is sort of the priest king or the fisher king at, at the top. And you're going to have the development of the knowledge through the mystery schools or the wisdom schools that are going to be developed. And, of course, we're going to see great builder guilds that are going to be set up that are going to develop this knowledge and we we'll touch on that a little bit later that it's going to have a significant effect on building in the post-diluvian epoch as they did in the antediluvian epoch and all of the kingships whether it's the Mitanni dynasty or it is the Hittite dynasty or it is the great dynasties recorded in the Bible that are trying to establish world government but of course it's too difficult to get around the world through just conquering and with the technology and the knowledge that they had back then. Even though they're trying to develop the knowledge and bring about this world empire just as Nimrod was trying to bring about at Babel. And so you have the same priesthood, you have the same religion, you have the same development of these mystery schools through all of the metallic dynasties, whether or not it is Assyria or Babylon or Greece or uh, Rome, and is the same organizational structure that will be reestablished in, in the end time. So if you understand all of this and you, you, you kind of buy into that, then when we look at what happens with this religion as it comes down through history, and I'm going to now hand, funnel off into different channels for all of these different organizational structures and bring them together at the start of the modern era of the of the of the secret societies and the fall of, of the Knights Templar. But with the religious aspect of it, you have them working sort of independently with these dynasties throughout ancient history up till about 300 BC, 200 BC, 
in the Greek dynasty. And with the Greek dynasty, with Alexander, Alexander, it now splits into four empires, and Greek becomes the language of the world. And it is the language of commerce and of writing and of trading information. And at this point in time, we start to see a cosmology of religion sort of bringing them all back home. And it begins with, you know, uh, the Egyptian religion and the Greek philosophies and putting those together. And you have the religions in Egypt, not only the ancient religion, but the modern Gnostics of Alexandria and the Basilidines that are coming together through this cosmology and this global Gnostic movement, as, as I like to call it. And they're going to match that up with Zoroastrianism, and they're going to match that up with the Middle East religions as well in terms of the Covenant land that includes organizations like the Mandaeans and the Sabaeans and the Johannite brothers and Kabbalism, the mystical part of uh, Judaism that most people are familiar with, although those other organizations are sort of branches of that Kabbalism, and of, and of course the Essenes, who also take the religion back to Heliopolis. And the Essenes are a significant part of this organizational structure because they are going, they are sort of the base organization and the religious organization aspect that the secret societies are going to take their modern wedge of their organizational structure back to through the, through the religious aspect, including things like secret handshakes and the allegories and, and, you know, crossover legacy issues like that, which is why they have so many rituals for the Essenes within the secret societies, which people may not be aware of remembering that, that history. But the Essenes also developed this monastic movement, which had started in India beforehand, but they're the first Western movement that's going to have this monastic sort of ascetic order of monks that have all sorts of sets of rules of diet and disciplinary uh, sort of uh, requirements to the order in terms of their worship uh, of their gods. And so this is uh, an organization that is going to resurface after the rise of Constantine um, after the death of Jesus and with the rise of Christianity uh, in, in the time of Constantine. And I'm, and I'm going to come back to that uh, in, in a couple of minutes. And so when we understand that you have this cosmology that is moving forward with all of these religions at around the time of Jesus, they're also understand that they want to draft in all the different aspects of the religion. So they're going to draft in Jesus and Joseph of Arimathea and James and uh, John the Baptist as part of the Essenic movement. And other groups like the Johannite brothers are going to draft them as well because they want to have this global cosmology of religion, something that we're seeing uh, happen today with religious uh, organizations meeting quite regularly. And so at the rise of Christianity, although it mixes with Mithraism, that we see some of that iconology still affect Catholicism today in terms of what it has mixed in with their imagery. We also have some of that imagery that we have in Protestantism as well. So we have that moving down, but that's not the main focus of where I'm headed with this. What we need to look at is, is when 
Christianity got control of the Roman Empire. It drove all of these other groups underground. It drove them uh, away from the Roman Empire or hidden within the Roman Empire and within the Roman Church. And it's important to understand that because these are the monastic orders that I was talking about. And so we have monastic orders like the Augustines, and we have monastic movements like the Calabrian monks, and we have orders like the Benedictines and the Cistercians. These are all monastic orders that are going to conceal Gnostics hiding from persecution in plain sight within the church and are have been working ever since the start of Roman Catholicism to turn it into a Gnostic religion for the end time. So it's important to understand that as, as we're moving forward. And a lot of the Gnostics, they mold into the Roman Collegia. And the Roman Collegia was the organization that built sort of the, the, the great megaliths, not the megaliths, the, the churches uh, and great buildings of, uh, of history from the Roman period form, forward. And so they mold themselves into them. And organizations like the religious organizations like the Manichaeans um, were also mixed in. So they all were all sort of within the empire collecting together in these monastic orders and through the Roman Collegia. And whether or not the Roman Church knew fully what they were or not, they certainly needed them to build their churches. And so you have this sort of unholy alliance if they did know. And I think to a large degree that they did know because you had so many of these leaders of these monastic orders rising up to very much powerful positions, and some of them even likely becoming popes. And so this is the builder guild aspect that I now want to talk about moving forward because it starts early on after the, after the flood with what people have come to know as the Dionysian builders and artificers and their building guilds. And this is the knowledge that is spread from Babel and into Egypt and over into Greek where, where the Dionysian builders are. Uh, and they're going to develop the Masonic building aspects of this, the masonry aspect of it. And they build, they're responsible for building all of the great temples after the flood, all of the great cities. This is where the knowledge comes from. And this knowledge is developed in the mystery schools, which the Greeks were very well known for. So the mystery schools and the, and the builder groups are going to be sort of part of the same organizational structure developing knowledge and in specifically for building monuments to their pantheons to worship and including the worship centers. And, of course, the Dionysian arts are going to come down through uh, Tyr as well. And the Phoenicians are also known for developing this knowledge. And this knowledge is the knowledge that King Solomon goes to to build the first temple. And so the Masonic organizations now link themselves back to this knowledge uh, coming out of 
the land of the covenant through the Essenes back to King Solomon. And they believe that this knowledge that was developed uh, was housed and developed within what they call night orders. And these were like the knights of the east and west, like with Jerobabel, which was reformed to build the second temple or the royal ark masons that they like to talk about. And also the order of Constantine, um, which is the Red Cross order. And the order of Constantine is a Red Cross order uh, that's reestablished with Gnostics at the time of Constantine, which is going to be uh, sort of the preliminary or early sort of organization, which is later going to be um, part of the Red Cross orders down down into later history or closer to our time and, and culminating in, in with the Templars. And so you'll have that knowledge coming down through the Essenes and through the princes of Jerusalem, as they like to call themselves, this knowledge within the covenant land and through the mystery schools of Greece and through the Magi in Sumeria and through the Egyptian religion in Egypt. And But it's the mystery schools that is going to continue to develop this um, knowledge. And this is the knowledge that is now passed on to the Roman collegia that the monastic Gnostic orders have now partnered themselves with. And so this moves forward down into history and just to take them up to the time of the Templars is, is the Templars when they excavate Jerusalem after taking Jerusalem in the Crusades uh, sponsored by the Roman church, they're going to bring back Gothic knowledge that's going to revolutionize the guilds and they're going to build the great Gothic architecture from the knowledge and information they bring back with them and they are going to now dominate these guilds moving forward which will make perfect sense as we move forward with some a couple of the other branches and so we now have the mystery schools that we have brought forward we have brought forward the religion and we now show how they intermix with the secret societies because the secret societies are part of these groups and also intermix with the religion because it's the religious orders that are sort of funding it and controlling these builder guilds all within the Roman church. And now you have the bloodlines that are moving forward that we need to intermix into all of this. And so you have all of these dynasties that we're talking about that are going to be, as time moves forward, they're going to be starting to send, start, establish new dynasties and kingships, and they're going to funnel into Europe, where the, the princes of Jerusalem, after the diaspora of the uh, Jewish people at the time of Jesus, at, after 70 AD and the destruction of the temple, are also going to move with, including the Essene, Essenic movement, and the Koblex. And they're going to intermix with all of these organizations within Europe. And they're going to intermarry with these dynasties coming down through Nephilim. The, at least the sort of royal bloodline aspect, as the Essenes would define them within Judaism, with these other Nephilim bloodlines coming out of the Middle East and starting the, the great kings of Europe. And so the European kings have their genealogies going back to the Middle East. And what's important to understand about that is that uh, they take their bloodlines back through 
very important kingships that I would say start with the Arthur and Celtic kingships where Joseph of Arimathea was part of it in their lore and also with the Merovingian dynasty. So I'm going to focus on the Merovingian aspect right now. And it's the Merovingian dynasty that has the bloodlines that include going back to King Saul, going back to King David. They even include, um, I think, falsified bloodlines back through through uh, Jesus, through Aragon and Aminabad, who is a descendant of Josephes, who is supposedly the third son of uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene, and somehow Jesus survives the cross and their their belief system. But this all comes together in the Merovingian dynasty, which is why it's such a memorable dynasty that is talked about uh, so much in history, and, is, and everybody knows them, just like the Armana dynasty and King Tutankhamun, because it was a great dragon dynasty. And so, as as this. As these bloodlines in Europe are coming down through history, you have the Catholic Church now going to knock off and replace the Merovingian dynasty and try and cut off this bloodline. So there's a, a falling out there. And the Catholic Church is also trying to wipe out the bloodline. But there's an individual named Dagobert who survives, again, according to Masonic history and he is going to become the descendant of Anjou and Bouillon and de Payon who are going to be three of the noble class that are going to form the Knights Templar. And the Knights Templar have uh, at their core they have and at their beginning they are all except for two, which are Cistercian and Benedictine monks, basically royal bloodlines, sons of kings. So Anjou, de Payan, and de Bouillon are all from the Lorraine region. And so this is the, the, the organization that begins, and it's going to become a monastic knight order that has papal bull in 1128 at the Council of Troy, and it's going to be St. Benedict, who is or St. Bernard, who is a Benedictine monk, who is the second most powerful individual at the time of, uh, of the formation of the Templars, who is going to carry, get this motion carried through and, and establish the Templars as uh, an official knight order. And they're going to don the Red Cross at the behest of St. Bernard because... He's a Benedictine, and it goes back to that order of Constantine and that Red Cross order that is established when Constantine comes to power. And so they are going to then crown the Bullion's brother Baldwin in 1118 on a small priory, the Abbey de Notre Dame de Sion in Jerusalem. King Baldwin as King of Jerusalem because of these King Saul titles because Saul the Benjamites are Saul is a Benjamite and the Benjamites are rewarded with Jerusalem by Joshua at the, at the time of the conquest and so they are crowning themselves King of Jerusalem which is a heraldic title that comes down to even this day which is an important allegory and title to keep in mind for the end time. And so, in eleven, and in the organizational structure you have of the Knights Templar, it takes the 
the philosophy of the Basilidians, it has the Gnostic religion, and it has the organizational structure of the Assassins, which is a mystical part of the Sufis at the time of the formation. And this is the organization that they're going to bring back to Europe. And they're going to be developing the knowledge with St. Bernard in these monastic orders. And they're going to get, the Templars are now going to move that influence and take over the builder guilds and control them for the Gnostics. So they're a Christian movement on the outside, but at the core, they're polytheist and Gnostic. And actually, as part of their rituals, will spit on the cross uh, for initiates and they believe they have the secret, the secret of the of these royal bloodlines that they're that they're housing, the Grail bloodlines, as they also like to call it. And so, this organization is is called the Priory of Sion. Is is at the core, and it's important to understand where the Priory of Sion fits because they're going to split away from the Templars in 1188 after the fall of Jerusalem because they believe the Templars have lost their way. And so the Templars will move on but and continue to create great wealth. But in 1307, they're going to be dispersed. And it's important to understand how powerful the Templars were. Not only were they the strongest military order, not only were they responsible for developing great knowledge, but they were also the great banking organization and invented modern banking, including credit facilities and the checks. And they lent to the kings and indebted the kings uh, and became incredibly wealthy, which is why the Roman church and King Philip are going to move in 1307 to destroy the Templars. And out of that is going to become a realization that you cannot keep all of this uh, power in, in one organization, which is why we're going to see that organizational structure of the secret society sort of split uh, off after the, the fall of, of the Knights Templar. And so we have now mixing in with the Knights Templar, just as sort of to recap why the Knights Templar are important, is you have the religion, you have the knowledge, and you have the builder guilds and the schooling being done through these organizations, along with the bloodlines, that is the same ancient organizational structure that they were trying to take over at the time uh, of the Templars. And and try and re they were trying to remove Catholicism out of Europe. And so when you look at how religions that were not part of the European nature Come, come down through history. We have the Manichaeans who f flee as well, also not only into the guilds, but into parts of Asia. And from them, you're going to see them sort of start or be the root organization for the Paulicians and then the Mesolanians and then the Bogomils. And what's important about the Bogomils out of Bulgaria is they start, uh, start up sister uh churches and priories in uh, France and parts of Europe uh, that you might be familiar with as the Cathars and the Albigensians. And they rise to a power where they're ready between the kingships that they're dominating and the religion that is now rivaling Catholicism 
they are about to do a takeover. Of course, the Roman church uh, responds viciously through the Inquisition and loyal kings to them to stop this before it happens. But we see these organizations all working together at that time and continue to work together and will after uh, the fall of, of the Knights Templar. And so uh, when we understand that the bloodlines and the religious nature of Gnostic religion within the secret societies, within the builder guilds, are the, are the religion of the royal bloodlines in secret. And that you need to understand how the bloodlines and the importance of the bloodlines work together in, in going about how they're going to bring about the end time. It's because it's the pedigree of the bloodlines that sets up this hierarchy of the secret societies, just as you have the pedigree of the bloodlines that they call the black nobility within uh, the Roman Catholic Church, but you have a pedigree within the church as well, and that's why the Knights of Malta, which are also part of uh, the Roman uh, Church's uh, knight organizations, are all, you know, run and led by uh, bloodlines of royal families. It's a requirement, just as the leader needs to be a bloodline of, of the royal family. Um, it's the pedigree of these bloodlines that dictates the hierarchy of the organization. So the religion and the secret societies and the development of the knowledge is reporting up the ladder to the purebreds. And the purebreds are the descendants of the Nephilim, are the royal bloodlines, and they are the ones that uh, are also at the higher orders of the secret societies that we're going to cover in great detail, beginning with this, the Red Cross order, which starts at 1188 as the Rosicrucians. And what we're going to see moving forward is this Red Cross order be the primary organization that I'm going to talk about in detail in part three, that is going to be close to the intersection to the top of the bloodlines on the top of the secret societies where the religions funnel into to the the more higher bloodlines and, and secret society organizations. So I'm hoping you enjoyed part two and I think you're really going to look forward to how these organizations uh, reform with the same organizational structure after the fall of the Templars that sets up our modern age. Thank you.